Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We continue moving toward the season of Christmas, but we're not there yet. As we look forward to Jesus' coming, it is yet the season of Advent. With this Sunday marking the fourth and final Sunday in the season of Advent, year A, our Old Testament text is going to be Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, the epistle from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and the gospel from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now, the pattern for why we have this Isaiah reading paired up with the Matthew text is going to be quite, quite simple. The Matthew reading from chapter 1 is about the birth of Jesus, which, as we look to Christmas next weekend, that is why we're having that gospel reading. But it picks up on an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, so we get to see the origin of where those words came from. So let's start with that Isaiah 7 reading. Now, before I read the text, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, I guess, the context around it. Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of God's people, that of Judah. And we are in the 8th century BC, that is the 700s BC, and we have two foreign kings who have decided to ally themselves against Judah and who are seeking to make war against King Ahaz. The one is a man named Rezin, R-E-Z-I-N, king of Syria, which is off to the north of Israel. And then the other is Israel, with her king Pekah, P-E-K-A-H. Rezin and Pekah together are seeking to defeat Ahaz, to the point where in verse 2 we read, When the house of David was told, house of David is a reference to the, the lineage of David, and thus Ahaz as a descendant of King David. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Ephraim there is a referent to the northern kingdom of Israel because that's where Ephraim, Ephraim is the place where the the capital Samaria had been. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So Ahaz is terrified, and so are the people of Judah with him. And then we get to the point here where God sends the prophet Isaiah to go and to speak to King Ahaz. And that's the text that we then find ourselves with. So let me read verses 10 through 17. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of Yahweh your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put Yahweh to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now, for a little more context to this whole conversation, Ahaz is not a faithful king. He's not one of the kings in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah who's described as being faithful, doing right in the eyes of Yahweh, walking in the ways of the Lord. Quite the opposite. He's described pretty grotesquely in 2 Kings chapter 16. Verse 3, it says, He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom Yahweh drove out, before the people of Israel, he made, he sacrificed, and he made offerings in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So he's fraught with pagan worship, personally, not just permitting it among the people. He does it himself, worships all kinds of false gods, burns his children, at least one of them, alive as a sacrifice to either Molech or Kamash, that's not identified, but those are the two typical 
gods associated with child sacrifice in the ancient Middle Eastern or Near Eastern world. And then when you skip down in that chapter, he goes off and allies himself. Instead of seeking God's help in the context of where we are here in Isaiah 7, he allies himself with Assyria, with Tiglath-Pileser, who is going to be the one just before Israel's conquered. So Tiglath-Pileser III will not be the one to destroy Israel, but that comes pretty quickly at hand. Anyway, Ahaz goes and meets him at Damascus, which is actually in Syria, Rezin's territory. And there he sees the fantastic altar that they have to their false god, and he makes a copy of it. He has the priest, Uriah the priest, back in Jerusalem, make a copy, building this altar to a pagan god, and he puts it in the temple. He takes the altar of Yahweh and pushes it off to the side for this new god, this better god in his mind. So this is the man we're dealing with as we look to this text today. And so when we see God offering to ask for any sign, we'll come back to that in a moment, but Ahaz responds, I will not ask, I will not put Yahweh to the test. He's full of himself. He doesn't believe Yahweh exists. At least it would appear he doesn't believe Yahweh exists. If he does, he doesn't care. If he believes in Yahweh at all, he sees Yahweh as a weak and lesser God, inferior, who is pretty much irrelevant. Ahaz's rejection of this offer is, is a display of his faith in other gods. So God offered him a blank check. Let's just phrase it that way. It's a familiar phrase, at least to some generations still. I guess our little children today don't know the phrase because we don't write checks much anymore, at least not as a culture. He offers him whatever he wants. I can only recall one other instance that's quite like this, and that's 1 Kings 3, where God offers King Solomon anything he wants, and Solomon famously asks for wisdom so that he can rule and govern God's people well. And the Lord gives him that gift, but not only that, also others. He gives him great wealth. Ahaz could have asked for anything. Deep is Sheol, that's a reference to the ground beneath our feet, the idea of death being buried. So deep is the ground below us, or high is the heavens. And anything in between, ask for whatever he wants. Ask for a sign. A sign that he can trust God. Now here's one. How about the defeat of his enemies? Again, it's a blank check. He can ask for whatever he wants. Why not have Rezin or Pekka or both of them toppled? Why not ask for God's judgment to come against the wicked? Okay, maybe not phrase it that way because he's also the wicked. But he could have asked for his enemies to be defeated, and he doesn't. Because again, he does not believe Yahweh is God. He doesn't believe Yahweh can act. In order for Yahweh to be able to defeat Rezin of Syria, Yahweh would have to be stronger than Rezin's God, whoever Rezin's God may have been. Now, as Christians, we know Yahweh is the only God, and so Rezin's God, a false idol, wouldn't have stood a chance. But Ahaz, again, doesn't believe that. So he refuses, he asks for nothing. Now, I always point this one out. It can be a really fun family conversation to see how, how would you have answered verse 11? How would you have answered God's offer? What sign would you ask for? We don't have that opportunity. We have not been given the, the blank check to ask God for whatever we want. We are called as Christians, as his children, to pray, indeed to ask him for the things that we need, to care for us, to provide for us. But we don't have this ask and the Lord will give kind of a statement in the same way. 
But what would you ask for? It can be can be interesting to ponder. So having rejected all of this, Isaiah then responds to him, Hear then, O house of David. It points back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God made David the promise that one of his descendants would sit on the throne in Jerusalem forever. And the Lord is indeed going to keep that promise, even though it won't be with Ahaz. It'll continue. The generations will come and go. But ultimately, this promise is fulfilled in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the house of David, represented by the kings of the people of God, has rejected God's promise. So the question becomes, when does the house of David repent? And this is actually going to be Joseph. It is Joseph who finally brings about that repentance for the house of David, as he is one of the heirs of David. And he trusts the promise. He listens to the angel's words and he names the child Jesus and he cares for him. He acts faithfully in doing whatever the Spirit instructs him to do, whatever the angels tell him to do. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? I don't know that we know all that much what that opening phrase means that he wearies men. Now, it could simply be a reference to the idea that Ahaz has done something to stir up and agitate both Rezin and Pekah, that they're bringing this battle against him anyway. It could be more than that, but there's nothing here. So, you weary men that you weary my God also. So keeping with the way we just phrased that, you've wearied, you've agitated Rezin and Pekka, and so now you've done so with God that you have rejected him. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign because you're not going to ask for one. God is still faithful. God is going to prove himself anyway in spite of you. Here's your sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is going to be what brings us again to our gospel being Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. It will quote from right here, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Who is this about? We obviously see it being about Jesus because Matthew in the gospel tells us it's about Jesus, the inspired, inerrant, holy word of God through the work of the Holy Spirit teaches us this. So yes, it's about Jesus. I'm going to say it's about more than that. What's wrong with only seeing this sign as being about Jesus? The sign is spoken. The sign is given directly to the wicked King Ahaz. If this sign were only Jesus, it really isn't much of a sign because Ahaz doesn't live to see it. Instead, the purpose, the value of the sign is in the, the verses that are going to follow here, verses 15 to 17. It's a reminder to King Ahaz. This is going to be a child in his home, in his house, that he will see day in and day out and will remind him of his own wickedness and that the Lord is yet faithful. Now, I don't mean to confuse uh, some of the listeners. Some of you are familiar with the idea of twofold prophecy. Some aren't. Essentially, the idea of twofold prophecy is that most prophecies in Scripture perhaps not all of them, but most of them, have a twofold meaning. Let's just go back to Genesis 3.15, the first promise, the first prophecy in Scripture. God, in the midst of speaking to Adam and Eve, and then to the serpent, the devil, and then he'll go back to Eve and then to Adam to finish it off. But as he speaks to the devil, he's going to tell him that he's going to send a Savior. Specifically, here's how God phrased it. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Now, historically, this is known as the Proto-Evangelium. Proto, first, Evangelium, evangelism, good news. The first good news in Scripture. Right after sin enters the picture, so does the gospel. God is going to defeat the devil by sending a Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ. So we know this to be about Jesus, but it's also true in a smaller sense, isn't it? Man and snake don't get along. How many of you like snakes? What would you do if you saw a snake slithering around in your house right now? We seek to crush them. They seek to bite us. It's a fairly commonly seen thing. And so this is an example of a twofold prophecy. It has that minor fulfillment, but it has a greater fulfillment that comes in and through Jesus Christ. So it is here in Isaiah 7. There is a minor fulfillment that happens in Ahaz's lifetime, happens right before his own eyes. It's a sign to him, a daily reminder to him, again, of his own rejection of God, but God's faithfulness to him and to his people. And then it is fulfilled later, greater, in and through Jesus Christ. So let's unpack some of this and why I can say what I'm, I'm sharing and suggesting to you. So, first, the word virgin. The Hebrew word here is not the typical, normal word used in the Old Testament for a virgin, uh, but is instead the Hebrew word alma, which can mean virgin. It can be translated maiden. It can also refer to a, a woman, a young woman, who is married but has not had a child yet. Not to say she's barren, she just hasn't had a child yet. So you think of a newlywed, for example. He will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So, the picture here again, there is going to be a woman in Ahaz's house who has not had a child yet, but will bear a son. Now, most likely, this will be Ahaz's own son then, but it could, I suppose, be a servant in his house, and so a servant's son. And they'll name this boy Emmanuel. And so here's this child running around the house with his name, a constant thorn in Ahaz's side, reminding him, pointing him to this conversation with Isaiah the prophet. Now, why can we be so certain? Again, continuing onward, he shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Twofold here in verse 15. First, he's going to eat things that babies don't eat. Curds and honey. That's nothing all that spectacular. I mean, curds come from milk, and so this is the land flowing with milk and honey after all. But you don't give curds to a newborn. A newborn is nursing. And even today, honey is one of the few things we don't give to babies, as we know that there's something going on in the honey, I don't remember exactly, uh, but can make infants sick, and so you're supposed to wait until a child is at least a year old, and so forth anyway. So we're, we're not working with a baby here. He's grown up a little bit. He knows how to refuse evil and choose good. But, verse 16, before he knows these things, so while he's still that infant, the two kings you dread, their land will be deserted. Rezin of Syria, Pekah of Israel. Ahaz reigns over the southern kingdom of Judah from roughly 736 until 716 BC. Again, giving you the context, the time frame here. And it's in that time frame that Israel is destroyed by Assyria. 722 BC, either Shalmaneser V or Sargon II one of those two kings is going to come and sack Israel. Gone. Taking their people into exile. The land is deserted. Assyria will also defeat Syria. I know their names are very similar. And this child, before he can do these things, before he can eat curds and honey and know good and evil, these lands are gone. Now this is true of Jesus who comes 700 years later. These kings are gone, their land's deserted. Although they're not really deserted anymore at the time Jesus comes. 
But again, God is giving this sign to Ahaz. So there's importance to that, significance to that. And if this is only referencing Jesus, this sign doesn't do Ahaz much of any use. It isn't really a sign to Ahaz any longer. So best to see as a twofold prophecy. It's got a small meaning in Ahaz's time. There's a lot of debate over who this kid would be if that's the case. Some have suggested Hezekiah doesn't seem to work. Hezekiah appears to have been born prior to the end of Pekah's reign, significantly prior, I should say. So a different son. Did they literally name him Emmanuel? Hard to say. But we know it, again, from the gospel text that we'll read here shortly, we know it with certainty to be a reference to Jesus Christ. So there's the minor fulfillment and there's the greater fulfillment in Christ, as much Old Testament prophecy does do. All right, verse 17, Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. What is verse 17 suggesting? Considering what the day of Ephraim departing from Judah is referring to, that's the day, as Ephraim again is a reminder of a representative here of all of Israel because the capital was there. It's a reminder of when the kingdom split. Under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, just a couple months into his reign, the entire kingdom is ripped in two. Israel, the northern kingdom, separates away from the people of Judah and the the remnant of others who remained with Judah. And they, they form their new nation under Jeroboam as their king. You can imagine what great grief that day was to the remnant, to King Rehoboam, even though he was the fool that he was, and to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, those, those faithful there who were seeking God, who did value his temple being with them, that God dwelled among them in his temple, in his house. They grieved. And so God is now saying that there is a grief coming upon you, a grief that you haven't seen in hundreds of years. And that grief is going to come from the king of Assyria. As any hope, any thought of reconciliation between north and south, any chance that these two kingdoms would be reunited and return to worshiping Yahweh in the temple is going to be decimated when the Assyrian king marches through and lays waste to that northern kingdom and exiles the remnant that are there. No more. So there will again be a day of great grief amongst God's people as they mourn that loss, that destruction. Before we can get to that gospel account and keep going with Matthew, though, we have our epistle text from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Now, it's worth doing a little bit more digging here on the book of Romans today because it sets the stage for much of what we'll see throughout the year. In year A, we see Romans, we've already seen it three weeks here in in the season of Advent, but we'll have it again during the season of Epiphany on the baptism of our Lord Sunday. It will serve as our epistle four out of five of the Sundays in the season of Lent, and then it will be the majority of our season of Pentecost epistle readings as well. So this is the open of it. It helps us set the stage for much of the rest of the year for the epistle readings. We don't know all the details about this letter contextually that we might like to. Paul writes it before he's been there, so he'll go there in prison in the late 50s, I think 55 seems to be a a pretty common consensus for when he might have written this letter, 55 AD. He's writing to, as he'll identify for us here, the saints in Rome. So he's actually writing 
into the heart of the Roman Empire, to Rome itself, to the people who believe in Jesus Christ that are living there. Suffering, as their faith, is outlawed. This is seen as probably the, the most clear depiction of the gospel amongst the epistles, and so Romans is a favorite for many for that very reason. It is the book from which Luther ends up having his tower experience, as some like to call it, where he, with the Spirit's help, recognizes that God's righteousness doesn't just refer to his perfection, but also the idea that that righteousness that he demands of us can refer to the righteousness that is given to us in and through his Son, Jesus Christ, that we are seen by God as righteous not because of our deeds, but because of his. Christ takes away our sins, and then his imparted or imputed righteousness, his righteousness, his perfection is given to us, so that that is what the Lord sees on the day of judgment. But for our text for today, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In some ways, this is a simple letter introduction that will match much of the introductions you would find in the ancient world. That Unlike our letters today, where you sign it at the end, you would open your letter with who you are, as well as your credibility, like why the reader should bother to pay any attention to you. So we see that. We also see common marks from Paul. That greeting at the end of verse 7 is pretty standard across his epistles. He has written 13 epistles that we have, at least in our New Testament. And so as we see those, we can see his refrain as he continues to repeat the words again and again. He introduces himself here by the name Paul. We also know him in the church as Saul. Those are both his name, by the way. Uh, We oftentimes misunderstand it and think that he was renamed from Saul to Paul, but he wasn't. So he's named Saul as his Jewish name after the great first king of Israel that God had selected, Saul, to be the leader of his people. 1 Samuel chapter 8 for that. He's also named Paul as his Roman name. As he is a Roman citizen from the city of Tarsus, he's actually named after a famous Roman military figure by the name of Paul who had been from Tarsus. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The Greek word here is the Greek word for a slave. Uh, English translations don't tend to like that language because culturally in America we don't like that language. But Paul's okay calling himself a slave of Christ. We are going to be a slave of something. We are going to have a master. The question is, is our master the Lord? Or is our master something else, in which case it's probably our own sinful nature? We were slaves to sin is going to be language seen in the letter. Now we are slaves to God. And so is Paul. So he, he doesn't have an issue using that phrase, using that language. To be a slave to a good taskmaster would put you in a position better than most historically have been in. 
I mean, would you rather be impoverished and not know where your next meal is coming from? Or be a slave in the house of a faithful master who provides you several meals a day and puts a roof over your head and gives you a community to be a part of in exchange for you doing work for him? It's not that difficult of a picture. The Lord is a faithful master. He cares for us. He provides for all of our needs. Now, we're not only called slaves, we are also called sons, and that's going to be a distinction you see in the, in the epistles as well. Both languages, both metaphors being used at different times. Called to be an apostle. Now, this word apostle simply means sent one, from the Greek verb apostello, to send. So an apostle is one who's been sent. Now, when we talk about apostles scripturally, biblically, we give it a couple of criteria. The Bible never lists these criteria directly. The closest that we see is in the book of Acts chapter 1, as the remaining disciples of Jesus are trying to figure out who will replace Judas among the twelve. And there Peter will say, One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So the criteria for becoming one of the twelve was to have been present for the ministry of Jesus and to have bore witness to the resurrection. That limited the number pretty significantly to the point where they only brought forward two, uh, Joseph, Barsabbath, Eustace, or Matthias. And Matthias is the one chosen. So he's then counted among the apostles. Judas Iscariot is called an apostle. James, the brother of Jesus, is called an apostle. Barnabas is called an apostle. And Paul. That's your list. So... Typically speaking, I'll call an apostle somebody who has seen the risen Christ and been sent by him, specifically, directly. For Paul, then, this occurs on the road to Damascus. As he was going there to persecute Christians, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial for their faith in Jesus, but instead the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road, struck him blind, revealed to him the mysteries of the gospel, and called him to be his witness. So Paul is now set apart for the gospel. Set apart not to be like this world, not to just fit in, not to blend in. He is different, holy, set apart. Now, what he's set apart for is mentioned immediately after, the gospel. He's not just being isolated, set apart, made different, made unique from the rest of the world around him for nothing. He's not being set apart so that he can be a great emperor. He's being set apart to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So Paul is going to live a life different from his community so that when they see him, they have reason to hear what he has to speak. This is a struggle for us as Christians today because we called to be holy, yes, called to be set apart, but we don't live it. By and large, from the outside, our lives look no different than the other Americans around us. We do the same things they do. We live in the same neighborhoods they live in. We watch the same sports teams that they watch. We eat at the same restaurants they eat at. We go to the same parks, we go to the same place of employment, we, our lives, generally speaking, look the same. And they don't recognize, then, the value to the hope that we have. So that is one where we could, as a, a church, as a, a people, we could improve upon our witness. which he promised, so the gospel, that he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. It's a reference for Paul to the entirety of the Old Testament. And God has made the promise many times. 
going all the way back to Genesis 3, but also numerous times later in Genesis that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's offspring, Genesis 12. We see it in really just about any of the prophets that a Savior would come. God also prophesied judgment, so it's not the only thing, but a Savior would come. And this has now come. Jesus has come. Uh, again, we're talking Advent, which means come. So concerning his Son, that the Christ is the Son of God, who was descended from David according to the flesh. So again, that promise in Second Samuel chapter 7 that God would put one of David's descendants on his throne in Jerusalem forever. And in Genesis 12, that that descendant would be from the people of Abraham. According to the flesh, his lineage can be traced. In fact, we see that. Both Matthew and Luke record the lineage of Jesus Christ. Was declared to be the Son of God in power. We'll have to unpack a lot of the phrases here. Declared to be the Son of God. We know that he is the Son of God. But this declaration is a declaration to us. How do we know that he is the Son of God? We'll keep reading. In power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. By. That's the how. By his resurrection. We know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because he rose from the dead. Now, we can know it from his own words. If you go back and read the Gospels, if you have one of those red-letter Bibles, just read everything he said. The thing is, he either is who he said he is, in which case he is the Son of God, or he's a liar, and nobody should go anywhere near his teachings. This is in contrast, by the way, to those atheists who claim that Jesus was a good moral teacher. No, he's either God or he's crazy. We know he's God because he rose from the dead, just as he said that he would. And it's one of the parts of his, well, I'll call it prophetic word, because he said it about what would happen in the time to come. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, as Paul will cover in 1 Corinthians 15, we are stuck in our sins because he wasn't God. And if he's not God, well, he can't, okay, he's, he can't be God because he's a liar, if that's the case. If he's not raised, he's a liar. If he's a liar, he can't be God because God is perfect and holy and everything God says is truth. If he's not God, he can't die on the cross to forgive our sins because he's just another sinful man like the rest of us. So this is all chained and linked together. We know Jesus is the Son of God because he rose from the dead. Now, we also know this in power, according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit teaches us, shares with us, that Jesus is Lord. This is the Spirit's work to point us to Jesus Christ, again and again and again. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, you can see already here at the beginning of Romans that Paul is a king of run-on sentences. There's a lot here to just try and dig our way through. Through whom? Through Jesus we have received grace. That is his gifts, gifts of forgiveness. Forgiveness, life, salvation, all the wonderful things that Jesus gives. And apostleship. I'm going to make up a word here. Our sentness. And our purpose. Again, Paul is set apart to be an apostle, set apart to share the gospel. He's not just sent for nothing. He's sent with a mission. His life has a purpose to it. And while I won't call us apostles today, I don't know that that's a word the church should use for any living Christian because the Bible uses it very limitedly to those, I believe it was 16 men I named off earlier. We are sent Matthew 28, we're sent to teach the gospel. 
to all nations, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything Christ has commanded us. This is good. So Paul, doing that very thing, to bring about the obedience of faith, that phrase, I think we could, as Lutherans, we'd like to just shorten it to faith, to bring about faith for the sake of his name. Obedience is, in its origin as a word, much more connected to hearing than it is doing. Faith comes by hearing is something Paul will say later on in this letter in chapter 10, verse 17. But it is, it's going, going to be a, a hearing that goes beyond just the words going in one of your ears, but that you actually process that. Uh, so the, the idea that faith is heard, that the Holy Spirit works and brings about that faith within us, is certainly something we can connect in this text. For the sake of his name. For the sake of. That his suffering would not be in vain. We preach the gospel so that others for whom Jesus died would know that he died for them and they would receive that wonderful gift of forgiveness rather than rejecting it and saying that they desire not Christ or his gifts. Among all the nations. Now that does function multi-purpose here. It does point us back to Matthew 28, Jesus' call to make disciples of all nations. But it also, as it's being written directly to these Romans, it can have both a humble and a prideful aspect to it. There's the, the humble side, addressing those, those Romans who are recognizing that they are not themselves Jews, that they are not the ones to whom most of the Old Testament was addressed, and yet Jesus is their Savior as well. But it can also be the prideful side, as you might have a Roman citizen saying, oh, look how great I am. I'm a citizen of the greatest country in the world, like many Americans like to think about themselves today. A recognition, then, that the gospel is not just for you, the great, it's for all people. It's even for those nations you despise. Among all the nations, including you. Notice whoever is reading this could read that very thing. All nations, all people, this promise is for you. Now, specifically, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So the idea that we are adopted as his sons and daughters through the waters of baptism, which we'll see in chapter 6, that'll come up on the baptism of our Lord Sunday in year A. So in just a few weeks' time, called, adopted, baptized, made his. We are his family, his people. Was there a period in that entire paragraph? There was not. And we don't get one until the end of verse 7 anyway. So again, Paul very good at run-on sentences. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So the epistle to the Romans is not written to every Roman. It's not written to Caesar. The epistle to the Romans is written to those who are his, God's people, the saints. Now notice that word saint, holy ones, as we would talk about it. Oftentimes the, the Roman Catholic definition of saint is the one best known among even Christians and other denominations. That's the idea of a, a person who trusted in Christ for salvation but was a very holy person in this life, did many good works. And so they are, after their death, proclaimed to be saints by the Pope. I'm not suggesting there's anything necessarily wrong even with that practice. That's fine. But we're called saints. It means holy ones. And it is Jesus who has made you holy. So in, in Lutheran circles, you'll hear that word saint used much more openly, commonly, Every parishioner, 
every man, woman, and child sitting in the pew on Sunday morning that believes Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive their sins is a saint. That's the way we tend to use the phrase. And that's the way it seems to be from Paul here. You're not reading this epistle if you're dead and resting in Jesus. Written to those who are called to be saints, a subset of all Romans. God loves all of them, but this is written to his people. And then again, the common greeting at the end. Grace to you, the gifts of Jesus, forgiveness, life, salvation, and peace. Reconciliation. That our sinful rebellion is done. That there is no more war between us and God. Accomplished by Christ on the cross. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That now brings us to our gospel reading, which is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, a very familiar Christmas text to most Christians. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, it's interesting that of the gospel accounts, the four of them, only two of them cover anything from Jesus' early days. Well, his birth, conception, those, those sorts of things. His early days of his earthly ministry time. For ultimately, being God, Jesus technically has no early days. He has no beginning. He's always been. He's eternal. Jesus comes. Matthew records the birth for us. He also records the genealogy at the start of the book, which, by the way, we never actually read in church. It doesn't show up in the lectionary, so feel free to read it in advance of reading this text. Matthew records this, the birth, the visit of the Magi, the trip to Egypt. Mark covers nothing of these earlier days. Luke will also give us some genealogy. He's going to cover the Annunciation, the time the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would be with child, which is also believed by most traditionally to be the time of the Incarnation. Incarnate, carn, flesh, taking on flesh, Jesus coming into the world and taking on flesh, becoming one among us, so his conception. And then John's Gospel also, like Mark, doesn't cover this time, although it does say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's incarnation, conception, and so forth. But Matthew and Luke get much more specific. So here's what we have from Matthew. This is also our Christmas Eve gospel reading, by the way, so you might be getting this the next two times you're in church. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal in the Jewish society was much more than what we consider it today. So we hear betrothal, we think the word engagement. They are engaged to be married, but it's more than that. Today you break off an engagement, there's hurt feelings. Something caused that, but... It's not viewed as being wrong to break an engagement. It was then. In fact, betrothal 
had a ceremony to it where the man and woman are pledged to be united as husband and wife to one another. Typically, from my understanding of Jewish customs at this time, after that betrothal ceremony, there's usually a few months, at which point the marriage is consummated and husband and wife live together. They're already considered husband and wife, though. They're promised to each other, and this is why, in verse 19, he resolves to divorce her quietly. We'll talk about that word a little bit more in, in that verse, but he's not just breaking the engagement. He would have to divorce her. So much stronger, close to marriage, just without the sex. Which is interesting then with the rest of the context here, right? Before they came together. Why say that if they don't later come together? Why say he knew her not until she had given birth to a son if he never knew her? These little time phrases in verse 18 and 25 both imply that Mary and Joseph are a regular married couple in that regard. That they have sex together, that they have other children together. Mark chapter 6 will record that Jesus has brothers by the names of James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And also sisters. There are some who take that to be that they are cousins, not brothers and sisters. There are others who suggest that Joseph has been married before, that he is a widower, and so he brought other children into this marriage with Mary. All of this is unnecessary. The Roman Catholic Church certainly believes that Mary never had sex. They believe she remained a a virgin her entire life. They will even talk about it in the context of Jesus somehow coming out of her womb without damaging her virginity, without damaging her birth canal, causing no pain in birth. And as the Reformation happened, even though Lutherans rejected many of the weird ideas that the Catholic Church was already teaching at the time, they didn't reject the teaching that Mary remained a virgin. They sought to maintain that one. And I don't believe that there's a a full description anywhere of of why they retained that doctrine in particular. I just think that we see that they did, and they continued to teach in that, that manner that she and Joseph never had sex. It's just, again, it's not something that the scriptures actually say. Right? You won't find it in scripture anywhere. It seems to be more so a picture of what the Roman Catholic Church over the centuries started to think about sex, that sex itself was dirty and could not be done in a pure and wholesome way before the Lord. Now, this goes against what God designed sex for. He made it as a good gift for husband and wife. But this is part of why the Roman Catholic Church rejects their priests getting married. It's why monks were celibate. It was viewed as a lesser thing. And so, with the idea that Mary must remain holy in Roman Catholic theology... They had to preserve her also from sex, lest she be tainted by this sinful thing. Now, sex is not sinful when done the way God designed it to be done, which is within the confine of marriage between husband and wife. Sex is good. It is a gift and should be treated and talked about as such. I I don't know for for sure, but I would suggest that that is where the Roman Catholic position ultimately comes from. They believe Mary was without sin, and they believe Mary remained without sin. The Immaculate Conception is not about Jesus, it's about Mary. They believe that Mary was born without sin, conceived without sin, so that when she then conceived Jesus, he could be conceived without sin. Now that one's kind of circular logic, because in order for Mary to give birth to Jesus, Without passing on sin, she had to have been born without sin passed to her. But in order for that to have happened in the same way, her mother 
and her grandmother and her great-grandmother all the way back until Eve would have had the same thing. At some point or another, otherwise you'll lose it. Right? How does, why just do Mary? Why say that Mary had to be without sin so that her child could be without sin? It, it doesn't make sense. There's no need for it, but it's a teaching that, that is had. And so all these things end up coming together to the point where, again, it is taught and believed probably by the majority of Christians in the world today that Mary and Joseph never consummated this marriage. And that Joseph was somehow called in then by this angel who's not identified, unlike Gabriel speaking to Mary in Luke's gospel, that this angel is calling Joseph to a life of celibacy. I don't see it. I don't think the scriptures bear that weight. And it's irrelevant, ultimately. It does not take away from Jesus if he had brothers and sisters. Not in the slightest. It doesn't take away from Mary being, well, a saint. Not in the slightest. We don't believe she was perfect. We believe that she was a sinner needing a savior just as much as we do. And her son saved her. Thanks be to God. So before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I love this phrase, with child. We should use it today. When a woman is pregnant, the common language we use is she's expecting. Expecting what? She's not expecting to be a mom, although that's what we say, right? I'm, oh, I'm expecting to be a dad. Oh, yeah, in a few more months, I'm going to be a grandpa. How do you know that? Do you know your daughter and son-in-law are going to have sex at such and such time and conceive a child? There's already a child present. If a woman is pregnant, there is a child in her womb, a living being, distinct from mom and dad. This is why, as Christians, we reject the idea of abortion. Because it's not just a clump of cells. It's a person that God has made, a gift of life that he has given. Let's talk that way. Let's adopt this language. To be with child. No, there could be other ways to say it too, but this is the best way I've seen so far. Tell your family you're with child and rejoice. But she is not with child by Joseph, which would be the normal way of things. Rather, this, not Anna's conception of Mary. We don't even know Anna's name. That's the church tradition, though. Anna's conception of Mary is not the holy one, the different one, the unique one. This one is. There is no earthly father. It is the Holy Spirit who has planted the seed who has placed the Son of God, Jesus Christ, inside of Mary's womb. Now this could make an argument that it is the Father who passes on original sin, that Jesus is without original sin because there is no earthly Father to do so. This would be the way the scriptures tend to blame Adam for the fall into sin rather than Eve, even though Eve was the one who took the forbidden mango and ate it first. I just like to say random fruits, by the way. We have no idea what fruit she ate. But she ate it. And Adam takes the fall for responsibility because he was in charge. He was the head of the family. And so it is the head of the family who passes on sin. And we see that Romans would talk this way. Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Scriptures never specify that original sin is passed from father to child, so we can't say it with certainty, 
but a, a phrasing like this, a picture like this, to look at this text would, would certainly indicate that's a possibility. So her husband Joseph, being a, a just man, the word just there is dikaios in Greek, which can be translated just or righteous. I would prefer to see English use righteous here, because if he were just, he would seek justice. He believes he has been sinned against. He believes he's been wronged. So he would seek justice against Mary for having harmed him, wronged him, harmed their life together. But he doesn't. So it doesn't seem just is the right word. But righteous, righteous as we know from, again, the book of Romans, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, faith. To be righteous is to have faith. Joseph has faith. He is a faithful man. And that's what we see, the little that we see of Joseph in Scripture. As the angel here tells him to wake from his sleep and take Mary as his wife, he does. As he tells him to name him Jesus, he does. As he tells him to take his family down to Egypt, he does. Joseph acts faithfully in what the Lord gives him to do. This is good. So, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The penalty for committing adultery for sex outside of marriage could well be death. There's certainly an Old Testament precedent for it. But instead of bringing her to the courts, Joseph is going to divorce her. That literally means send her away. Divorce doesn't end a marriage, it it sends the woman away, sends her back to her father's house, most likely in this case. He's going to do that without shaming her. She's going to have to raise this child, she's going to need help and support. How's that going to happen? Uh, Lots of question marks. But he doesn't want to be the one who makes it harder for her. He doesn't seek to harm her. This is good. Now, ultimately, we know that he's wrong, that Mary has not wronged him in any way, and an angel reveals that to him in the next verse. As he's thinking about considering these things, an angel appears to him in a dream, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Son of David, that's covered in the genealogy, but the promise that the Messiah would come from the house of David being carried through. Do not fear. So he was fearful of what shame might befall him. What would the community think? What would his family think? But the angel says, do not fear. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It would be hard to take in, but again, he's faithful. He does. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is from the Hebrew verb yasha, which means to save. Yeshua is then the the Hebrew name that comes from that verb. When we translate Yeshua into English, we translate it as Joshua in the Old Testament. This is the Greek version of that old Hebrew name. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew uses that language ten times in the book. This is the first. So he likes to point the Old Testament being fulfilled. He quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14, that a virgin would conceive a son, name him Emmanuel, God with us. Again, John covers this in chapter 1 of his gospel very well, that he would dwell among us. And he does. This is fantastic. And again, As we talked about in the Isaiah reading, this does point to Jesus. We know it points to Jesus because Matthew tells us it points to Jesus. But I still remember a a day sitting in class at seminary where a professor told us, nobody at this time, so Matthew's day, no, I'm sorry, the the day of Matthew 1, which is 6 BC, 4 BC, somewhere around then, Nobody at that time was expecting Isaiah 7, verse 14 to still be fulfilled. They all thought it was done. It's kind of interesting now as Christians, we only think of Isaiah 7, 14 as referring to Jesus. But nobody thought it was. 
until Matthew brings it forward. And again, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It is by the Holy Spirit that this is true. We know it's true because he's given it. But no one was expecting it. No one saw this coming. No one was looking for a virgin birth for the Messiah. Joseph wakes from sleep. He did as the angel commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, called his name Jesus. So there's all the stuff we've been talking about already. Let's end by highlighting the fact that he is God with us and he will save his people from their sins. This is why he came to be God with us, tabernacling with us. So literally is the John 1:14 word. He's here. He's present. God among us, God with us, God in the flesh. This is a thing of comfort, that our God knows us, can empathize with us, as the preacher of the Hebrews will pick up on. But ultimately, taking on flesh allows God to die. That he can pay the price, he can shed the blood to take our sins away. Is it too far to say that's why we're Christian? Would we be Christian if Jesus hadn't forgiven us? Would there be a reason to be? He's our Savior, and he has come. And as we wind up this Advent season looking for the return of our Savior, for Jesus Christ to come back into this creation... We do so every day, waiting and hoping and trusting, knowing that he is faithful, knowing that he is our Savior who has rescued us, and he will keep his promise. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come.